0: Hi there, my name's Ollie Lloyd and welcome to the Food Talk Show. On today's show, we're joined by Dr. Morgan Gay, a futurologist who worked with brands like Mars, Unilever and Nestle, the kind of big boys of the food world. Now, the truth is the food world's changing, so brands like these really rely upon understanding where the trends are going. And so when I got the chance to have a chat with Dr. Morgan about the way that she sees the world evolving, I jumped at it. So I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Morgan Gay to the Food Talk Show today. Thanks for
1: joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Have fun.
0: So, um, I suppose, obviously not everyone um, spends their their days with futurologists. So, do you want to sort of start off by telling us what it is you do and the kind of work you do for the sort of brands I mentioned?
1: Yeah. I mean, actually, I'm a food futurologist, which is really misleading because it makes people think that, that I'm a great chef or that I really like gourmet meals, and all things around food in terms of me eating it. And actually, it's a lot more involved because it looks at geopolitics, economics, biobehavior, mouthfeel perception, flavour, fragrance, everything that goes into why we're going to be eating what we're going to be eating in five, ten years' time. And those companies, of course, that are interested in that aren't just food manufacturers – And brands but they're also appliance and technology companies, governments, banks and everybody in between. So what I do is I consult to those companies in many different ways whether that's product development and working on long-term projects, doing a trend briefing, working in different ways really, workshopping things, so all sorts of things.
0: Great and so I suppose, tell me how you got into this because that's a, a pretty um, big world to jump into.
1: Oh my goodness, that's the hardest question of all. Because I wish I had a the water cooler, the the elevator pitch, the one line that I could uh, give to, to that to that question. It just came about through lots of different converging, I suppose, skill sets and interests. But I w- I did talk about food and write about food and culture in my phd part of my phd and also i realized that you know food is much more than the meal it's everything and i suppose that's why i'm drawn to it it's because it's everything and i'm interested in lots of things so it pulls all of those skills together and i and public speaking which i really enjoy which probably most people would hate so i like to get up in front of a big audience and chat on for an hour so it's worked out pretty well.
0: Excellent. So, I mean, look, let's, ju- let's jump into the, um, to the food trends. And I suppose, what are the big things that I suppose are impacting the way we, you know, we're eating today? Um, I mean, obviously, there are lots of ones that people talk about, but I suppose I'm always interested in, in the ones that different people pull out as being the ones that they think are, are driving the decisions people are making today.
1: Well I think everybody knows it's a you know right now we're in a bit of an economic situation and people always think that price is the driver but the thing that always drives drives why people eat what they eat is actually aspiration and so beyond everything people think they buy the food they like and they like the taste of people think that they're buying maybe because it's a bargain or maybe because it's they can feed their family of four but above and beyond all of that It's about culture and society and aspiration, because that's what we are socialised around. It's what perhaps we were fed in the womb. We were fed as children and that we've been socialised around growing up. And it's the friends that we hang out with and the people that we know. So that in some ways drives everything. And that's why it's so cultural and so specific, which is why it touches upon the age that we're at and that changes, you know, our preferences change through the whole age curve. It, it's, it affects, it's the underlying thing that affects everything.
0: How do you think the kind of the fact that we're, we've got an ageing population is going to impact the way we eat?
1: Well, every single age group not just eats differently because of their requirements. So, for example, to be more specific, older people much older people prefer things that are pureed. They like ice creams or mashed potato partly because of their teeth, you know, things like that. Their food preferences start to change. And it's like children. Children, very young children, don't like bits in things. So orange juice with bits, they definitely don't prefer that. They prefer smoother things. So, you know, there's just a certain preference that comes with age. But there's also the cultural preference within an age group, For example, the 55-plus drink a lot more alcohol than the 25-year-olds do right now because that's just their generation. That's the behaviour of their generation. So with the ageing population, what we'll see, which we've always seen, is the preferences of old people will probably remain constant because that's what old people tend to like just because of physiological changes. But then you've got the personality of that cohort. So whether that's the baby boomers or, the, or Gen X or whoever they are, there's certain foods that were cool, things that seemed uh, very exciting or interesting or just cultural preferences. So that's what we'll see with that ageing population. They Every single population age range will take their cultural aspirational foods with them as they get older.
0: Isn't but isn't one of the things that's really interesting? I mean, look, I, I mean, I'm you know late forties, grew up in a world where I think you know at school people defined themselves more by the music they listened to and the football team that they that they supported, than it was the food that they ate. I sense nowadays that food is much more part of young identity, and associated with that, I think comes an interesting tension between. The younger cohort of consumers and the older cohort of consumers, where I, I sense that the younger audiences are kind of, I'm going to call it deliberately baiting the older consumers to change some of their behaviours, whether that's kind of, you know, reduction in drinking or adopting a more veg first approach. Do you see that playing out in the, in the next few years?
1: It's definitely happening. I mean, that's that's right. We we're all, we've always been forming tribes. So exactly as you say, whether that you are a goth or you were a heavy metal. Um, fan or whatever you know that's that's what we're always trying to find our people especially as we start to assert our identity when we're teenage perhaps trying to separate from the parents but food is also a, a huge part of that and although it might not be as overt maybe 20 years ago as it is now it still was happening and we see it with lots of things unfortunately we're seeing with eating disorders but we also see it with a rejection. It's the rejection of the parents. So, you know, as you, as we've you know, sort of mentioned, it can be music, but it can also be the family meal. It can be what mum cooks. Oh, I don't like that. So-and-so's mum makes blah, blah, blah. You know, there's always been a little bit of that. And... Even I remember it at school for packed lunches. You know, I had packed lunches, or you didn't have packed lunches, and oh, they everyone who's great has a packed lunch. And you know, there was always that thing. Foods always separated us or brought us together because it is exactly that. It's how we commune. It's how we celebrate. So, so I do think that um, that we still we're still in that. We're just in a different, maybe a different phase of it. But it is right now um, a time where there's a lot more awareness uh, for all generations around the impact of what we eat on the environment and on our health. We've got more information than we've ever had before so that the younger generations are absolutely reading the packets of everything and perhaps the older generations have come from a time when they just trusted that the food would be okay and that there was enough wasn't that a relief there's enough food to fill up on don't worry about what's in it just think about you're going to get some food today so of course culturally there's a shift
0: so let's talk about that health thing because it's so interesting isn't it because I you know I suppose if we all go back to sort of the early days you know health food was sort of an outlier it was sort of brown rice it was you know sort of uninteresting uninspiring and you know my god it's come on a journey in the last 30 years um where now i think you know a a significant number of people based certainly on the data i've seen are embracing a more a more sort of veg first diet how do you see that health trend evolving
1: oh my goodness it's it's huge yeah and and We've, you know, we're seeing a lot more plant-based eating, brands jumping on that bandwagon offering, um, offering more options and making health more convenient. And I think that's one of the big things that we've seen over time is that we do have a lot more free time and health and convenience have played into that space. As we go forward we'll understand much more about epigenetics, about the gut microbiome, our personal DNA, and what what we exactly need that day and how to get what we need that day. Of course, technology plays a, a, a huge part in that. So that we will be able to identify within the apothecary of the future, which is basically our kitchen, how to get our nutritional needs that are bioavailable and absorbable that day and specifically for us as individuals. You know, we're already seeing the kind of tech, the kind of body tech that we can analyse and, and track our own, you know, some clunky bits of data, like the Aura Ring. You know, we've seen the, the, that sort of thing come through, maybe Zoe, but these are really early iterations of what we'll see as we go forward, so that health will become so personalised that it won't be just an algorithm. That it really will be based on our data.
0: Do you? Do, I mean, I, I, I'm fascinated by kind of the stuff that people like Zoe are doing and the whole idea of, of more personalization. But one does sense that there's going to be a very clear economic cut in this area where there are, you know, I mean, look, as it is the case today, there are people who can afford to eat well, and eat well is going to become more enabled by technology. Versus people who are just a not able to access that technology, but also not be able to access the kind of expensive ingredients associated with that technology.
1: So I think there is a disconnect um, in this country and in many countries. We've stopped food education so that we think that health is expensive, or that there is um, an inability for people who don't have a lot of money to be as healthy as people who do have a lot of money, and. That's really, really, really unfortunate because ultimately we have disconnected ourselves as humans from our human nature. And as we go forward, the biggest question we're going to be asking is what does it mean to be human? We seem to have lost all connection to that because if we're eating like the actual species that we are, we're not buying expensive food from the supermarket we're buying the most basic things that are the most natural ingredients possible. So that we are eating, we are eating a highly plant-based diet that is just basically vegetables, some fruit. It's the stuff that we can get around us that hopefully would be um, mostly seasonal, mostly local to wherever we live. I mean, that is the actual human ideal. So, you know, things like Michael Pollan, you know, the books by Michael Pollan, who've who've written about this also, and lots of other authors and experts just saying what we really need to be healthy is very simple. But unfortunately, there's a lot of noise and there's an expectation and and an aspiration also, of course, from kids who want to have certain foods or think this is healthy because it says so on the packet. But the reality is the healthiest stuff isn't in a packet. And so that's the unfortunate position we're in.
0: But isn't the interesting tension, you know, obviously is, I mean, look, I spent 10 years working at Unilever, is that ultimately the the fact is these businesses and the entire food industry doesn't want that future. You know, the idea of a, of a plant-based future where, you know, we turn more towards natural, unprocessed ingredients that come from the land, you know, that is... That is not where the margin is.
1: Well, where they are, they are going that way because they realise that's the actual trend. So what they are doing is innovating around that health space, around benefits of natural ingredients. They themselves have had to reduce a lot of the ingredients that maybe aren't recognisable, but also play into that space much more and understanding that health is not just physical, because of course now we're talking a lot more about well-being, mental health. So that ingredients speak to nutrients, multifunctional benefits, um, immunity, all of the big watchwords as we go forward. So they are really, although maybe there isn't as much margin because of course sugar's cheap, and you can put a lot of that in it and bulk things out and make things taste good and therefore make them more addictive. They know that really there is a still there's still going to be a big push towards health and they have to innovate into that space.
0: You, you talked earlier about tribes and about sort of identity in food. How do you see kind of the I suppose the, the, the internationalization of food as personified through by sort of social media and and you know the kind of massive growth we've seen on on platforms like TikTok and, and food on TikTok, um, versus kind of a, a retreat towards kind of more of a national identity. How do you see that tension playing out between that world of sort of international food and national identity?
1: Oh, that's a really great question right now, because what we have seen is the pendulum really did swing into the the whole you know we wanted everything to be globalization make it bigger join everybody in it was almost t- making three it's always like like three major countries in the world and so we're taken away from all of the small little nations and of course we've seen now that that's swinging back there's a lot of conversations around identity of course there's wars right now around identity there's a lot of Playing out in the other direction, which is all about localization and not just countrywide but town, even just even in the town in the small space, and that's increasing as we go forward. What we often tend to see in trends is a the pendulum swings and then it swings back, but also parallel trends happening in unison. So, so we are seeing a lot about this norm core, cottage core. Um, make do and mend this going back to something that feels a lot more like the rituals of the everyday we started coming into that in 2020 during covid bringing it back into the home in some ways the smallest localized place and people were baking bread and doing those things that connected them to a food um, uh, you know, uh, just connected them to food itself as a as a source of everything of meaning And so that's kind of, you know, that's continuing. We're seeing this playing out in villages, towns, localised communities, and we'll see that continue because right now there's a massive lack of trust, there's a lot of instability, there's a lot of insecurity. And for that reason, you know, people don't particularly trust that they can get the food they need, that the food they get will be good, that it will be... um, Good for them do, do they do they really believe these big brands? do they believe the governments? Well the answer to all of that is no. And so that's why things are starting to become much more about tribes almost like your bubble, your extended bubble. Who are these people? Do I know them? Do I trust them? You know, this is the food that I want to eat this is the community I want to eat with.
0: It's interesting, isn't it because as you know you you, know, you take I suppose ingredients that suddenly became available on supermarket shelves that we've sort of taken for granted whether it's you know all year round strawberries or all year round asparagus and i do think people are starting to look more at the well where is this from and how do i feel about where you know where that's come from that the air miles associated with it and i'm kind of interested in what is the so i get the nationalism agenda in terms of eat local buy local buy seasonal what's the international kind of counterweight to that that you see
1: Hmm, that's a good question. And I, I'm not sure how that will play out right now, because what we are going to see more and more and understand more and more as consumers is the political agenda around food. It's always been there it's it, but it's highly political I and mean, it's the it's the almost the number one reason why a lot of countries in the world don't have enough food it's not because there isn't enough food in the world for the whole population that's expanding it's because of the politics around the supply chain of getting that food i mean gaza is a great example of that right now so there is food, there is everything that could be taken into Gaza, but politically they can't get it in. And that's not different to lots of countries in the world that we don't hear about, that aren't in the news, that maybe have a a, a regime in place, or you know all sorts of other things at play, or that we just they, they just don't have you know somewhere along the line their governments haven't put in refrigeration systems that can do transportation of food. So, so internationally, you know, back to your question, how will that, you know, how will we see that? I think that we will start to understand, it, hopefully, in a deeper way that the way that we shop is how we vote, and we vote with our wallets. And if we're buying food from a country that maybe we don't agree with their politics, or maybe we know that their food isn't as good quality as another country, because because their legislation and their their food laws aren't as stringent. Then people will start to make different choices.
0: It's interesting that because I suppose if you look at stuff like the B Corp as an example, you know, there's I mean a lot of the work that I do is with challenger brands and brands that are trying to change the status quo and you know, I suppose debate the way things are made or the way the kind of philosophies sit behind certain brands. Do you see sort of the B Corp movement and the sort of more i call it ethical agriculture as being kind of a critical? trend that's going to just keep on driving.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Again, like I said, it's it's back to the trust. It's back to something that has meaning. One of the things that we are desperate for, human beings are desperate for, is meaning. Because everything, the stuff part of our life, the having, we've spent a long time, many, many, many decades with the aspiration of having having a better car, having a better house, a bigger journey, know, all of that stuff. And we've bought more stuff and we've had more things. And it was only during lockdown and COVID when we realised that all of that stuff didn't have any meaning. Half of it we'd probably never use again, wear again, have need for. And our aspirations have slowly shifted and they are continuing to shift. And meaning, connection, goodness a kindness actually, a real value, one of the big value system watchwords for the future are starting to take hold and businesses who speak into those themes and really have integrity that can be monitored or um, indicated will do extremely well because that's ultimately where the whole of our uh, purchasing and value system will go.
0: It's interesting, that whole thing around meaning, because obviously one of the things that is central, you know, to food is the idea of eating together. And I suppose we're in a, we are at a time of year where those eating together moments are, are coming thick and fast, whether it's Thanksgiving uh, or it's Christmas or any of the other festivals and, and moments over the holiday period that people people celebrate. How do you see the kind of, I mean, first of all, the sort of eating together moment changing in this post-pandemic world we live in?
1: Yeah, it's 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 such a huge part of how we celebrate in every religion, in every culture. And what we are seeing is a rise of celebrations, a rise of traditions and ritual. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, ritual of the everyday, trying to make meaning of this new world that we're living in, where people are perhaps working from home most of the time now. So how do they punctuate their day? Because that's what food has always been. And once people are almost free range left at home, then they have to punctuate their day alone and make ritual of certain things that they probably did in an office environment before, which they no longer perhaps frequent. So ritual, we will see playing out initially in very small ways. And then in all of our celebrations and we're seeing more celebrations we're in we're almost inventing celebrations or we're, or we're adopting other people's celebrations so things that we have done perhaps over the last 15 years that we would never done before like um graduation ceremonies that didn't happen in this country 20 years ago perhaps or definitely not 30 years ago we're we're taking you know Halloween has been another thing we're starting to have Celebrations more and more that we're naming and that we're that we're interested in, and even around bonfire night this year, we 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 were a party to other celebrations around Britain that have been going a long long time, but we've never really heard about. People are more interested in their ritualization of life, and food is always part of that, and it's what brands love because they love to be able to create foods for occasions. It gives them an anchor point, gives them a brand, um, gives it a brand identity almost to iterate on a, a theme or a product. So I, I see a lot of that as we go forward and people creating at meaning and making meaning. Always, they always do that with food and sharing food is a big part of that.
0: It's interesting, this time last year, I was in um, Mexico uh, for de- the Day of the Dead Festival with my family and was, I was kind of blown away by uh, the sheer in, in, uh, amazing creativity uh, that just came through in terms of the food, the stuff that people did, the advertising from brands. I mean, the way that that uh, food was celebrated in Mexico um, around the Day of the Dead Festival, I have to say, did put... Uh, you know, are sort of sweet laden um Halloween slightly <laughs> into, to shame. but i but I'm interested, I suppose in in looking forward in 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 how so how do you see sort of these big set pieces like Christmas changing you know today and and in the years ahead?
1: Yeah, one of the things like you know it 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 will also go along with this theme of meaning. So that I think we've, we've done a lot of bauble bonanza. You know, we've had a lot of sparkly, twinkly, everything. And a couple of things will, are, are happening and will continue to happen is that through COVID, and I keep referencing that because it was such a change point for the way in which we behave and socialise and think about value and meaning in our lives. But 2020 really changed the half of the home and made the focus the table. It's because it became the office, it became the workspace, it became the schooling space and, of course, the Zoom centre and then the place that people came together and ate together because there was nowhere else to go. So the centre, like I said, is the table and that really will be the centrepiece for Christmas. Before, it's been a little bit spread around and the table was just almost really a place for the food and the centerpiece of that might have been perhaps a wreath or some kind of decorative thing with a candle back in the day and perhaps maybe the christmas cake that had the royal icing on and a big winter snow scene on it that was really the centerpiece of the table there wasn't a lot more on the table whereas now and we'll see going forward a lot of tablescapes a lot of decorative items for the table and So it brings that focus, in a way, back to communing together, back to meaning, what's meaningful, because those pieces on the table will be perhaps a lot more crafted. So rather than being glitzy, they're more likely to be wooden or made from nature, because that's the trend that we're going to be going forward with for Christmas. It's a bit more of a natural theme, more of a nature theme, because we are now realising, again, since COVID, that it really was the highlight, going for a walk, going into the forest or seeing trees or just being in nature was the thing that we enjoyed the most. And so we'll see a lot of that theme coming through, whether that's floral motifs, floral flavours, much more nature-based decorative, uh, embossed, debossed cutlery and plates and tableware... Uh, things that just have something that just feels a lot more natural and real. Again, it's back to this realness.
0: And look, I mean, I have to say, I'm eternally thankful for for the fact that Christmas has changed over the years, and I'm no longer subjected to. Uh, well, I suppose I'm the cook, so I have the choice, but uh, I no longer subject my family uh, to a large. Um, turkey i mean it's interesting how i suppose the eating habits have changed what do you see as being kind of you know alongside your your trend towards the sort of the natural and the kind of the the traditions and i suppose as you said the invention what are the the food stuffs that you really see as being being central to to the to christmas and and other events like it
1: well i think as as you said you know it it's changing whether it, it always has changed We've invented it. I mean, really, it is a Victorian invention. And we have invented it. And it isn't fixed. And it's always been slightly modifying over time. And it's what we're doing now. It is much more plant-based. We are now not... You know, people used to have a turkey when they didn't even like turkey. But they had to because it was Christmas. And now people don't feel, as you said, as beholden to that, rather that they can actually invent it for themselves. So... I think that's what we're going to be seeing is a lot more choice, a lot less, a lot more choice to be a, a lot more choice to be free in what people want to have. But perhaps not as much abundance this year, not as much waste this year. I think that we're starting to feel about waste even though we've been told about it. That never being told about it isn't the same as when people are actually acutely feeling it. And this year particularly I think that people are more attuned to waste using waste, eating waste, they feel you know much more comfortable because there's so much on TikTok and Instagram about how to use you know, scrappy cooking, how to use up the scraps, how to be much more creative, not dissimilar to the way that our grandparents were cooking in the 40s, 50s and 60s, but back to that in a more innovative way. So I think that people will be more innovative, more creative, but perhaps using and wasting less than they have. A a slightly less greed, I would say. So that will go into what's made this year.
0: It is interesting how much changed over the pandemic. I remember one of my kind of abiding memories was when, you know, you were living at home with two children and you ate every single meal at home and, you know, you really weren't going out. The amount of waste that a family generated was suddenly really there for all to see. And I do think you're right, we've become far more aware of the way that sort of the consumption choices we make can lead to to kind of significant waste. Do you um, sort of, so you touched on kind of more plant-based, do you see the need around the kitchen table increasingly for more and more varied diets to being, being catered for? Do you see that whole sort of, growth of of different diets that people want to be a big thing that's going to keep going
1: i think i think that's what we will see i think that there's definitely this play in individual the individual needs but it's also countered with the sharing element and those two things coming together so my diet might be slightly different but i want to share that with you and i think that's what we'll see more so that perhaps it's more shared dishes on the table rather than, this is your meal, this is your meal. We'll see more of a selection of dishes and you can help yourself to what you particularly need. Because I think one of the trends going forward, when I talked about plant-based, it's putting the plants back into plant-based. The irony has been that the sales and the... the, the um, just, not just the sales, but the, the appetite for, for the fake meats has actually declined because a lot of companies jumped on the bandwagon and consumers during the pandemic found that a lot of those things eaten in bulk made them not feel so great and also when they started to read the packets because they had time and they were sat at home but wow I don't even recognize there's so many ingredients this can't be good and so there's been a bit of a backlash on that doesn't mean to say that that's the end of that trend at all it just means that it did weed out certain brands and the more the more clean label brands have done much better. So they will continue to innovate. But it, this next year, we'll see the plant being put back into plant-based, which is more creative cookery, more innovation at home, people just using skill sets that they have learnt from perhaps even the internet and using the the leftovers in a really clever way and I don't mean leftovers from the plates of something you cooked yesterday but like the leaves of a cauliflower or the stalk of the broccoli you know things like that
0: It's interesting I was talking to um, a CMO of a, of a major restaurant chain the other day and they were saying how in the you know a few years ago their, their vegan dish was like one of the top selling dishes and since they put the calorie counts on things and actually the vegan dish which is a pre-prepared type burger actually the sales of it had gone down significantly because actually people looked at it and went well hang on if it's not actually more healthy than the regular burger I might as well have the regular burger and it is interesting how that that trend i think has has been basically i mean i think slowed down potentially by the way some of the the sort of the The heavily funded startups in that space have kind of developed products that are full of all sorts of crazy stuff
1: yeah i mean there's a real disconnect isn't there between between what's what people perceive as healthy and what is healthy and what might might be healthy but might be quite calorific and then what might be plant-based or is it good for the environment is one thing but is it good for me is another thing and I think that's where it's a lot lot more complex, and so people may have picked the vegan burger, thinking vegan equals health, but it doesn't all. That's not a, at all the case. But what vegan does do is it definitely is probably it's definitely better for the animal. That's for sure. Um. So that's the that's been the disconnect, and I know a lot of there are a lot of uh, sort of snack bars that you might think, oh, that's great because it might say it's healthy or it's got nuts and seeds and sultanas I think that's great in terms of calories it's probably one and a half times more than a bar of chocolate so that's the tricky part is that it's not you know it's not like for like there might be loads of sugar in the chocolate that's not good for you it's empty calories however if it's just calories you're basing it on you know and I think that's we we haven't consumers don't declare it and and um, product and manufacturers don't necessarily understand why their product is popular. It just is. And so when it declines, they start thinking, oh, this is interesting. And I think that's where there's a lot of there's a lot of information still, a lot of understanding for consumers and and, and manufacturers alike.
0: It's an interesting one um, because one of the one of the brands I work quite a lot with, Yumbug, manufactures insect-based products for human consumption. So mints and burgers and strips basically made out of crickets and interestingly they are far more sustainable than most things but they're meat right they're not vegetables and i think what is interesting is going to be seeing how consumers learn about the nuances around sustainability and healthy eating and how that kind of plays out over time
1: yeah i mean it's it's fascinating because exactly as you say and i know quite a bit about insects and eating insects and in, in terms of environmental impact they're, they're amazing and on so many on so many levels it's probably is one of the best natural uh, natural ingredients I suppose to make burgers you know, better than beans better than peas better than a lot of those things in terms of digestibility environmental impact you know so many things but it is de- it does depend on the consumer's ethical perspective and also the yuck factor which in this country is pretty high in terms of eating insects despite the fact that you know two thirds of the world have always have and and you know that we eat other things that some other countries might consider to be disgusting like black pudding for example
0: Totally. Big big fan of black pudding and big fan of insects. Actually, the guys at Youngbug did a pop-up in uh, in Old Street the other day and ended up on ITV News uh, telling the story of, of what they're doing. And you're right, there are certain challenges around convincing people to try things. But I do think, you know, as I think we've said, we are in a period of change where, you know, look, I think it's pretty clear, or to most people anyway... That we need to do something radical from the sustainability agenda, and therefore, you know, in the same way that habits changed rapidly during the pandemic, it feels like there's an opportunity now for us to do the same.
1: Exactly, and I think it, like all trends, there's always the early adopters. You know, you're working with those, with those sort of disruptor, disruptive brands trying to innovate into a new space for a conscientious or concerned consumer and there will be the people who will get picked up with that you know get picked uh, pick up on that and go forward um and then there're the people that are going to be very late to the party and reluctant and resistant and that's always the case with all trends but but in some ways we just need a majority in order to make sustained change and whether we <laughs> whether we're aware of this or not how we do buy things influences and affects what is made for consumers because if people stop buying certain things the consumers the, the the manufacturers will not make it and that you know that goes across the board and we see that time and again where brands innovate launch something and it just doesn't hit the market. and I work with a lot of those brands who bring me in usually after it hasn't hit the market and wonder why it didn't work. And I think that's the thing is that consumers have a huge power and the way that people shop is a massive is a massive vote for what they believe in or want and it is very tricky because advertising is very powerful and branding we're very um in this country the uk we're extremely brand sensitive and we, we really pick up on the nuances and packaging and the textures and colors and font and all of the ad campaigns and again the aspiration that may come through influencers social media in a, in a myriad of ways but ultimately unless unless we do start making different choices and trying to think about ourselves as part of nature as opposed to separate from nature it, it we're just not it's, it's a really tricky time
0: Agreed. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of, of that amazing Barbara Kruger uh, image of I shop, therefore I am kind of image. And the idea of, of, of shopping as politics is probably a, a, a brilliant way to, to wrap this. You know, I think if ever there's a call to arms, it is to, I think, think more deeply about why we, why we buy things and choose what we buy. Well, thank you so much um, for coming on and sharing all your insights and thoughts. I really appreciate, really appreciate your
1: time. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Ollie on The Food Talk Show. Please do hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts
1: and follow us on LinkedIn. Thanks for joining us.